Good morning. I'm uh, incredibly disappointed that there are no video cameras uh, jumping out as I step up to speak the way they did for the kids a minute ago. Um, I don't know who the kid was playing with the tape in front of the stage and singing with her back to the audience. Uh, she takes after her mama, all right? Uh, do not claim her. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I claim her and the other three. Uh, happy Father's Day this morning. Uh, really glad that you are here, particularly dads, greetings. Uh, I was having a conversation uh, yesterday with a dad. We were walking uh, and, and talking uh, just both about our inadequacies as dads and husbands and challenges relating to loving our families and leading in family devotions. And I was reminded just even this morning of how often these days can kind of uh, plummet into this sense of just heightened inadequacy, like do I add up as a dad? Am I doing a good job? Am I led well this year? I want to remind you that your identity, first and foremost, is as a son of God and not as a dad. And that identity as a son of God, of a way better dad than you'll ever be, uh, is the hope that we share this morning. We have really good news that our standing before God isn't doled out based on how good of a job we're doing on any given day. That's why we need things like church this morning to remind us of that truth. So take a deep breath this afternoon. Rest in the fact that God has given you grace that you do not deserve through the person and work of Christ. And every inadequacy you and I have as a dad was poured out on Christ on the cross. The wrath of God for our sin was given to him so that we can have hope that even as kind of half-hearted dads most days, we can have hope that we are deeply and richly loved and that God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's really, really good news for us. So happy Father's Day in light of that reality. I want us to turn to the book of Judges uh, this morning, Judges chapter 12. Um, we're actually going to end this morning um, the second of three parts in the book of Judges. We'll pick up again Judges chapter 13 sometime in the early fall. Um, what we're going to do over, uh, over the next nine or ten weeks is uh, really attempt to move towards some practical areas of, of Christian living, Christian worship. Uh, one of the things we try to do around here is uh, use our teaching series uh, over the summer to not necessarily walk through a book like we typically would, because we know so many of you are traveling and are going to be somewhat disconnected to what's going on on Sunday. So we want to provide a really easy on-ramp and off-ramp for you. And so uh, what we're going to do is look at a passage from the book of Galatians, kind of Paul's concluding exhortation to the church there, where he uh, lists and identifies nine specific fruits of the Spirit, uh, evidences of God's work in our lives. And we're going to attack those fruits one by one over the next nine weeks and uh, look at how we might apply the truth of the gospel to these various areas that we hope the Spirit is at work in our lives. And uh, actually, our final passage in the book of Judges this morning from Judges 12 is going to serve as a really nice springboard to where I want to take us uh, over the summer John Stott, a famous pastor and author, uh, is said to have prayed every morning that God would let the fruit of the Spirit ripen in his life. And those who knew Stott would testify that he finished his life as one who was marked by discernible character. It seemed like the, the God answered his prayer. And that's our prayer as pastors for our church and for ourselves this summer, is that God would let the fruit ripen 
uh, in our lives. And we're going to uh, transition to that, looking at an interesting scene in the life of one of the deliverers that we are exposed to in the book of Judges. As the narrator gives us a sense of the unraveling of the nation, if you remember from last week, Jephthah has just won a battle over the Ammonites, but he's done so at a significant cost, the sacrifice of his daughter. He told God, who would ask him simply to lead the people by faith to win a victory that he'd already told them they're going to win anyway. And Jephthah makes a rash vow before God, hey, if you'll let me win this battle, I'll offer to you a sacrifice, the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. And in fact, the first thing that came out of his house was a person, his only daughter. And he offered her as a sacrifice. We were reminded last week that God wants our faith, that we don't have to make if-then promises with God. This morning, we're going to see the outcome of that victory as the nation of Israel inside begins to unravel. Let's begin to read in uh, Judges 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go over with you? We will burn, sorry, I laugh at that every time. We will burn your house over with fire, right? All right, so this dude, this deliverer, his entire life has been met by contention. First, within his family, he's kicked out. He's the son of a prostitute, just kicked out into a foreign land. Then with the Ammonites, and now with the Ephraimites. Now, to get a picture of what's going on in, in, this, in this scene, let's, uh, let's stage the battle using our stage. We've got the Ephraimites who are centered right square in the middle of the promised land. Okay, they are uh, one of the tribes of Israel, God's people given an inheritance in the land. Then as you move one step to the east, you encounter the Jordan River, that serves as a dividing line. If you recall, two and a half of the tribes get an inheritance of the land to the east of the Jordan. One of those is Gad. from. Okay. So we've got Ephraimites, Jordan, Gad, Gilead being in Gad. And then over here we have the land where the Ammonites hung out. So basically, Gad and Gilead is a divider. It's a buffer between the Ammonites and this group that is causing the friction here. And they come to our boy Jephthah from this Gilead place here in Gad, and they say, hey, you just got in a fight with the Ammonites out here, and you didn't invite us to the party. You, uh, you didn't bring us into the battle." These are, this is the Ephraimites, are one of the two leading tribes of Israel. So it doesn't go down very well for the nation to have won a really big victory over an enemy and like big brother not get called to the party. Now this type of contention makes a lot of sense, but the, the folly of this text is seen when you remember that what we have here is an inner Israel squabble. Up until this point, a lot of the contention that we've read about through the history sections has been Israel with these pagan nations, these outsiders. But here the scene shifts to two rival groups within the same nation, the ones who were to inherit the promised land. 
And they say, one group says, why didn't you call us into battle? Now, this question in and of itself reveals what's going on in the hearts of the people of this nation. No one is super stoked to go fight a battle, right? I mean, people die, there's all kinds of consequences. No one is really excited about going. Fighting has a cost. The reason you ask questions like this is because you're jealous. Somebody got something, somebody won a victory, and you didn't get any credit for it. And now you want a part. This is two rival groups within the neighborhood playing pickup basketball outside. And the one group that always gets whipped by the punk kids actually wins a victory that day on the ball courts. And old Johnny's been hanging out at his house, and he's gotten whipped time and time again. But this time, the little kids actually win the victory. And Johnny's like, what's up, dudes? I wanted to be there. I wanted to be a part of the time that you guys whipped up on the punks. Why didn't you call me in to the party? Now, if you remember the story throughout the book of Judges, they've actually done this before. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we saw the Ephraimites do the very same thing to Gideon. Now, at that time, Gideon kind of talks them off the wall, uses some, some finesse with this group. Uh, so we see that over and over and over again, these guys that are somewhat on the outside looking into the battle want a piece of the action. Jephthah's response is a bit different. Remember that we are tracking with the unraveling of the nation, so it makes sense that this group who kind of bows up against their nation, they get talked down, things don't go as bad as they could have in chapter 8. By the time we fast forward to chapter 12, it's going to get ugly. Jephthah in verse 2 says this, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up this day to fight against me? Now, we don't have enough information to evaluate all the claims that are mentioned here, but it strikes me as a bit of a stretch, to say the least. Ephraim presses Jephthah, who responds, boys, I did call you into battle, and you just didn't come. So when I saw that you weren't showing up to the party, I took matters into my own hands. And oh, by the way, I risk my very life to win this battle. You guys didn't show up to the party, so I, I, I took the risk that you didn't want to be a part of. Can you believe it? The sense that I get from reading the text is a bit of an exaggeration to the story meant to flex their muscles, his muscles specifically, with his prowess. Now, I won't name names, but we have a pastor on our pastoral staff who, when asked about his past experience in life, loves to go in to these fictitious Navy SEAL experiences. And if you've ever encountered this uh, pastor, just one of six, happens to be here sitting to my left this morning, when asked about his uh, life history, he will flex his muscles a bit by telling the most off-the-wall stories of his Navy SEAL background, of which he has none, by the way, okay? <clears throat> this is a sense that you get from the text. Jephthah flexing his muscles of his life-taking risk 
against the Ammonites. But, but it seems that the narrator is entirely silent regarding any specific acts of heroism on Jephthah's part. You would think in a book detailing the acts of deliverers, you would expect that if this did happen, the narrator's going to mention it, right? He's going to put the focus on Jephthah's great acts of heroism. But it seems that the focus of the narrator was merely on the foolish vow that this guy made. Here, there is no mention for concern of the greater whole. Instead, Jephthah takes their attack personally and fights back. Verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead, and he fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So these two inner Israel groups throw down. It's the brothers who get in a fist fight in the backyard because one dude stole the other's fidget spinner. Okay, That's what we've got happening here. They throw down and start just petty name-calling. One, the Ephraimites say, you Gileadites, you guys are just few. You're over there because you really want to be a part of the big boy group, but you're not really a part of the big boy group, so you guys left and had to camp out over there. You're just fugitives of the cool kid tribe. And as a result, Jephthah and his boys fight back. Verse 5, the Gileadites, they do something slick. They captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives get this... Turn, turn of words here, so they just got accused of being fugitives, and now the fugitives from Ephraim say, let me go over. And the men of Gilead said to them, are you an Ephraimite? And when they said no, uh, they said to him, then say, Shebeleth. And they said, Sibeleth, for they could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So we got this like code word going down across the Jordan, an, inge an ingenious trap. They couldn't pronounce it the way the Gileadites did, and so they're able to discern who's from one tribe and who's from the other. And this one group within Israel kills another group from within Israel, 42,000 of them. This is pure petty silliness. They try to escape, and the pronunciation of the word is the telltale sign of who to kill. Pick a fight, and they, they are, the big brother, is crushed by these Gileadite nobodies. This is the first step into what is going to come, which is full-scale civil war within the nation. One commentator I read this week said it this way, Israel is becoming its own worst enemy and God appears content to let the nation destroy itself. And this is what is going to happen in the stories that are going to follow. We have no statements of peace and rest. In fact, after their sham repentance in Judges chapter 10, God's largely silent throughout the rest of this book. We see a lot of stories play out, but we don't see the hand of God, the spirit of God, the power of God. We don't even see the word of God at work. If you remember earlier in the book, God is acting in these sovereign ways as we see in the book of Ruth to move people in places. And here it's as if history is just playing out and God's kind of taking his hands off. We know that's not the case. God is sovereign. He's involved. But clearly, he's letting the unraveling of the nation run its course. 
Now, what I want us to see and where this becomes particularly applicable to your life and mine is the placement of these divisive issues. The conflict, the inner Israel squabble, the civil war that is going to come. We are at this point in Judges chapter 12. And we see, just by the placement in the book, that division, conflict, contentiousness, isn't the real problem. It's symptomatic of a real problem. The real problem, as played out throughout the book of Judges and the history of the nation of Israel, is their idolatry. They've continually chosen to run after what their eyes see and what they want to pursue, in contrast to what God has called them to, and what they're uh, instructed to do as a proper act of worship. And, as a symptom of that underlying idolatry, division, conflict, rivalry, envy, all of these things become normative and the nation unravels. We saw this, actually, if you, if you press reverse and go all the way back to the garden, we see the same thing played out in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, don't we? What happens? Genesis 1, and 2, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam and Eve choose to rebel from God, to pursue what their own eyes desire. And what do we read right after that? We read the story of Cain and Abel. The symptom of the underlying rebellion from God is seen in human fighting, conflict, murder, jealousy, rage. In the book of Genesis, these are closely connected in a timeline to show us that idolatry always leads to friction between people. Friction or divide from God always demonstrates itself symptomatically in division between people. Now the same thing is playing out in Israel in the book of Judges. we got a bit more time between things, between these things playing out, but we see the same issue at work. The people had long since turned away from God. They've chosen time and time again to do what is right in their own eyes, and now their choices have resulted in chaos and division. This is the principle of sowing and reaping come to roost. They have sowed division from God, and now they are reaping division from the very people they are meant to enjoy life alongside in the land. And this process is the very same process that happens in our lives time and time again. The temptation is to believe that the core issue in our lives is conflict or division from our fellow brothers or sisters. Someone wrongs us, someone hurts us, we get sideways with somebody in our marriage, in our homes, in our churches. And the temptation is to believe that the root problem lies there. But the book of Judges and the Council of Scripture reminds us that division and conflict, the root of that is far more fundamental. Division in marriage most often results in someone who has chosen, or both parties who have chosen, to rebel from God and live lives in unrepentant idolatry. And then that's going to work itself symptomatically out to ever-growing division in human relationships. We see this in our marriages, we see this in our parenting, and far too often we see this in our churches. 
The pushback is often, but people really hurt me. How will they ever know and learn if I don't address these issues? What we often find is that the more we humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to God's care, the more we prioritize proper worship and alignment with God, the more we either learn to be content in a broken world where relationships are always going to be tough, or the more God works to accomplish the heart change in others that we cannot manipulate on our own. The process of addressing division, contentiousness, envy, rival, whatever it is, sideways human relationships, is to run towards the issue of our relationship with God. It's to address the fundamental worship issue and allow God, as it were, to address the sideways nature of our human relationships, which are merely symptomatic. Is there a time and place to address legitimate hurt, which we're not even sure if it is legitimate in this passage from Judges 12? We're not sure if the Ephraimites were legitimately wronged. I assume not. Is there a time and place to address that? Yes. But it's always after this hurt has been taken to God in prayer, and we can speak to the issue with love and grace, recognizing that the division that I feel with anyone, my wife, my children, or anyone in this church, is symptomatic of an underlying issue that I have to address with God first and foremost, and so do they. What symptoms do we observe in this passage? What symptoms of idolatry do we see in human relationships here? Sadly, these hold a mirror up to what we see in our own lives. We see bitterness. You didn't pick me, and I want to be a part. You hurt me 20 years ago, and I just won't forgive you. We see selfishness. I want to be a part of the action, and you didn't let me. We see what I would assume is at least a bit of lying in the past. I called you into the party, and you didn't come, so I went and flexed my muscles and showed off on my own. We see blame. You didn't come, so I had to do it all. We see petty name-calling, which I wish you and I were above, but sadly we're not. You guys are just fugitives of the big boy tribe. And then, an outworking of that, we see these two groups fighting between one another. Now, no notice this connection. Peace with each other is to be indicative, or a picture of, a deep and underlying peace with God. Those two are meant to go hand in hand. Contentiousness, divisiveness, is not a mark of godliness. In fact, it is for us a check engine light on the spiritual health of our hearts. If you find that you move through life with this overwhelming sense of bitterness towards those who rightfully or rightly or wrongly have wounded you, that is meant to be the very same significance 
as getting in your car in the morning and an alarm going off saying something's wrong in the engine. You need to check this thing out. A life lived in bitterness towards someone is meant to jar us out of our apathy and force us to assess our hearts before God. It is to be a check engine light for our spiritual health. I want you to notice the the passage we're going to move to next week in Galatians 5 really presents this tension for us. The fruits of the Spirit, as we we see them, are, are a contrast to the fruits of ungodly living, which at their core... One, the fruits of ungodliness leads to divisiveness. It leads to rivalry, faction, envy. Whereas the fruit of God's Spirit is love. It's human relationships done right. Here's Paul writing in Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now notice how many of these are human relationships gone sideways. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But I warn you as before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, in contrast, the fruit of God's Spirit at work in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Do you see the contrast? The fruit of God's Spirit at work is meant to bubble up into right human relationships, and the fruit of ungodliness bubbles up into division and conflict, played out on a national scale in the nation of Israel and played out on a personal scale every day in your heart and mine. This is Jesus' disciples arguing about who is going to be greater on the way to the cross. This is the Corinthian church who reads these words or hears these words from the Apostle Paul. But I, I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not even ready for it. 
Even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What's Paul's point? It's the same point he makes in Galatians 5. Sideways human relationships are indicative of childlike, not healthy, not appropriate, childlike dependence on God, but childishness. It is immaturity. It is evidence that God's Spirit is not at work in our lives. The longer these matters go, the more deeply entrenched we become and the more acceptable it is to live with sideways human relationships. And, sadly, the longer you dig in to bitterness or divisiveness with others, the more difficult it becomes to rebuild those relationships in the long run. We see this play out on a big scale as local churches flex their competitive muscles with one another, where we're forced to ask the question, would I be just as thrilled if God blessed the church down the street as I was if he blesses here in a very profound way? Can I be content and encouraged or is this a gamesmanship with others? We see this on a local scale as infightings and factions are far too common in God's church. This is why when you walk into many churches that are struggling, many churches that perhaps have already died, they just continue to have people show up week after week, what you will notice is that overt divisiveness is one of the most common last stages of death in the life of the church. They're just eat up with hatred for one another or for people who are not like them. I always think of, uh, before becoming a, a local church pastor, I uh, would travel and speak at, at churches. I was a pretty terrible evangelist, but people would ask me to come into their churches. And I remember being called in to speak for uh, a rural country church somewhere in, in South Carolina. I can't even place it now. And uh, they had the, the, the chairs on the stage behind the pastor. And so I got up to preach, and the senior pastor at this church sat in the chair right behind me for the entire sermon, which is awkward. I mean, let's just be honest. It was really strange. Uh, and we got done, I uh, got done with the sermon, and they invited me to stay over for like a potluck meal in the church. And I'm like, yes, like this makes it all worthwhile, right? Uh, this, is, this is really good. And we got to the potluck meal, and after everyone had been served their plates, the representative, I guess the deacon, head leader in the church, got up and led the church in a vote to oust the pastor who had just sat behind me during the sermon, who had cancer, was dying of cancer, and the church, members of the church, believed he had been sloppy in the way he was allocating his time and not working hard enough in these days when he was struggling with terminal cancer. And they voted during that potluck meal to remove him as pastor of the church. And I'm like, why did I just waste my time in that sermon? right? Like, what's, what, what in the world is going, when you are marked by that sort of internal 
divisiveness. The lampstand of God's Spirit has long since left that place, right? And so what, what, do, you, what do you do? The only way to curb this trend on a big scale or personally is to take personal responsibility for our role in promoting unity with one another. This is why you in the church, you never sin privately. You lose that right. I tell this to every couple that I ever marry. I say, you really didn't ever sin privately before you got married, but as soon as you say, I do, you throw out private sin. Every sin you ever do for the rest of your life is going to have implications for your marriage. Everything. Everything. You are one flesh with another human being. It's going to have implications. And the same is true in the church. Everything that we do, disunity, bitterness, gossip, divisiveness of any sort, is indicative of a lack of personal ownership for our independent worship of God and has the ability to destroy the work that God, the good work that God is doing among his people here. We end the story really tragically in verse 7. It just says, Jephthah judged Israel for six years. And then notice, Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in his city in Gilead. He can't lead Israel. This dude's Jephthah the Gileadite, and that's as far as his ceiling is ever going to go. In trying to bring peace and rest to the nation, he actually fostered this internal rivalry that's going to lead to the nation's unraveling. Which is why the same is true here as been true throughout the book. We need a greater deliverer of whom Peter can say these words. For this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Now, hear these words. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die and live to righteousness. Once again, the invitation for us all is to look to Jesus, who perfectly worshiped God as the exact imprint of the nature of God, God in human form, and he left us an example of what it looks like to deal with human relationships even when, if anyone, had the right to revile in return, it is the perfect Son of God who was unjustly crucified. If anyone had the right to threaten, it's the one who commanded the host of angels. And yet, he was willing to entrust himself to one who judges justly. That is the hope that you and I have, too, with human relationships. We don't have to get even because we submit to one who judges justly. 
We don't have to make everything match up according to our standard of justice because, friends, we see quite poorly. We can entrust ourselves to one who will judge justly and pursue worship that leads to unity. The twofold rhythm of application for us this morning and every day is that we would confess symptomatic disunity before God. That long before you have a powwow with your wife over the disunity of your marriage, you are on your knees before a holy God asking him to reveal sin in your life. That you are holding the mirror of the word up to your soul and confessing your sin before a holy God. And then, two, that you confess your sin to one another. And I would encourage you that this practice doesn't have to wait until perhaps there is some big, deep-seated rivalry, bitterness, or all-out war. In fact, I often think of the first few trips that Sarah and I took with the kids to the dentist, where they encouraged us to train our children to brush their teeth. And we're like, but they don't have teeth. And the dentist said, yes, but they need, even if it's with a finger, to get used to what this is going to be like over time. They need to be trained to care for what is to come. And the same training process happens for people who are walking in God's spirit. So this could be a minor out where you know that you've harbored bitterness in your heart towards someone in your small group that perhaps didn't respond the way you wanted them to and kind of go to bed every night thinking about it and yeah it's not an all-out war yeah you're in the same room on Sundays and you can kind of say hello to each other in the hall but you need to train yourself to walk and step by God's with God's spirit by picking up the phone call and saying brother I've, I've you never knew it but I've wronged you, and I need to confess this. I need to make this right. Friends, as we train ourselves to do those kind of things, we, one, protect ourselves from all-out battle, and two, we prepare ourselves for the proper rhythm if we find ourselves in a broader source of conflict. This is why I think Jesus' instructions, if you've got aught with your brother, don't don't come and, and worship. Leave, leave your offering, go make things right, and then come back. And that's my exhortation to you this morning, that, that you would make things right. And, and that could be like a really risky thing, like going and putting your arm around somebody else here this morning and saying, hey, uh, I'm sorry, man. I don't know why we're on the outs, but we are. Um, it could be writing some, a note in your journal that reminds you that you need to make a phone call on your way home or tomorrow morning to someone that hurt you two or three years ago. Um, On a day when we celebrate families, I think the application of this text is particularly relevant to us with so many deep-seated family squabbles. Uh, Perhaps it's been a long time since you authentically said, hey, I love you and I'm sorry. If something happened 10 or 20 years ago that that I wronged you, and we're kind of living in this, we show up at family events, but we're on the outs, um, I need to make that right even if the primary responsibility for the sinful choice isn't yours, 
you can take responsibility for worshiping God properly by going out of your way to humble yourself before a family member or friend. And this is the rub of worshipful obedience. This is where the stuff gets really, really practical. This is where the check engine light pushes us to do we really have faith in God? And I want to challenge you to respond this morning as we stand and sing. Would you join me as we pray? God, it can be excruciating for us to feel the pressure that comes when we don't entrust ourselves to the just judge. Um, the one who sees clearly and knows rightly all that's going on in this world. And um, sadly, uh, our lack of worshipful obedience, our lack of humility, our lack of faith, our unbelief, bubbles up in, in all sorts of really tangible human ways and in conflicts and um, the nation of Israel gives us a, a really broad picture of what we know to be true in our hearts and so would you by your spirit's work in our lives uh, shine a spotlight on those areas of division or bitterness the the check engine light on the worship of our hearts and would you by your grace prompt uh, humble repentance and ownership of these relationships. Would we be the kind of people that trust you enough um, to make things right, even when we've been wronged? Um, would you give us the grace to do that? Because it's hard, it's scary. Um, we don't know how to do it well, and we'll try to talk ourselves out of it for the rest of the afternoon. And so we're going to need your, uh, your spirit to help us know how to navigate conflict in a way that honors you. Would you do that so that your fame and greatness, so that the unity of the Trinitarian God is put on display in our world, and so that your church is a place that is marked by love, that is a stark contrast from a world of division. We ask that you would do that for your fame. In Christ's name, amen.